across the aisle. Yeah, they're coming to an understanding, even if it takes a while. She's liberal, he's conservative, but they're best friends. You're known to figure it out in the end. Now hear me out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Now Hear Me Out. My name is Harriet Erholtz, and I'm here with my dad. Randy Berholtz. And we are recording remotely once again, practicing, you know, the stay-at-home, shelter-in-place order, social distancing, all that good stuff that we're trying to do to flatten the curve. And that CNN uh, published an article today applauding California, which I thought was awesome. Thank you, California, for doing your part. And staying we're doing home. something right, California. That's a good thing. Let's hope so, you know. But <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy today to have an amazing guest here who I actually just kind of put two and two together a little bit ago and realized, oh, my goodness, I have read this man's book. Um, and they, they've really positively affected how I view leadership and curiosity and all these these things. Um, we are proud to have Michael Bungay-Stanier here today uh, to talk to us about kind of a different perspective on the coronavirus in the sense of he actually lives up in Canada right now, but he is Australian. Um, and he can kind of tell us about what everything is like up in Canada. And he has a big podcast coming out talking about the coronavirus and how to recover from it and how to deal with it and everything like that. But let's dive into to who exactly Michael is. He is the founder of Box of Crayons, which is a really cool company dedicated to helping people and organizations do less good work and more great work. And this business is best known for their coaching programs that work to give busy managers really hands-on tools as to how they can be better at coaching their employees in 10 minutes or less. He is also the author of the best-selling book, The Coaching Habit, and many others, including, and what he has been, you know, he said in a couple of interviews is his favorite, and and Malaria, which is a collection of articles about great work from thought leaders that actually raised over $400,000 for Malaria No More and even reached number two on Amazon. His book, The Advice Trap, is actually one of my all-time favorites and really helped me to tame what, tame what he likes to call your inner advice monster. And he has been compared to, although he humbly will say it is not a fair comparison, but he's been called the what Brene Brown has done for vulnerability, Michael Bungay-Stanier has done for curiosity, and I definitely tend to agree with that. He was a Rhodes Scholar and in 2019 was named the number one thought leader in the world of coaching. He has a master's in philosophy philosophy from Oxford, a law degree and a BA with the highest of honors from the Australian National University. And before founding Box of Crayons, Michael held senior positions in the corporate consultancy and agency worlds. He has lived and worked in Australia, the UK, the US and Canada. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here, Michael. We are so excited to, to chat with you. We are humbled, Michael. We are very humbled. Well, look, I'm really happy to be here. So thanks for having me. And I will tell you a, a, a funny story about Brene, or maybe not that funny, but when she was, I got to know her a little bit before she became the mega superstar that she is today. And years ago now, she actually called me up to ask me for tips on how to be a good public speaker. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's yeah, I, I didn't have a whole lot to offer her. And it turns out she's actually a pretty good public speaker. And I can boldly say that I have taught her everything I know. <laughs> but, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, she has <laughs> gone on to great things and she is a, she's also just a great person. That is That's so great. cool. Yeah, go ahead, Dad. No, Michael, I, I'm going to say, uh, uh, you know, our, a lot of our, well, most of our listeners right now are, are at home and they're, and they're social distancing, like Carrot and I, even from their family members or their immediate family members. And, and you know, they're, 
they're going through a pandemic, something which you know our generation really hasn't had to go through before. Uh, I know there have been you know smaller pandemics in the world, but I guess since 1918 there hasn't been anything like this. So, so uh, you know, I would think here, uh, you know, we've been talking with our listeners a lot about California and and my native Pennsylvania. We've been talking a little bit about of the U.S. overall, but uh, we don't have 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 anybody talking, you know, speaking with us about really, you know, maybe a Canadian view or or, or mm-hmm. a view of this crisis in in another part of the world. So so, how are things in Canada going? I, I, I mean, look, you're you're sort of a I don't want to say a double colonial, but it, it, you know, you mm-hmm. you're both an Australian and a Canadian, and so uh, uh, how are things going in Canada? What are people doing? I mean, what are you doing? I mean, you know, is this, we, we know it's the new normal, but, but how are you coping right now? Well, there's a lot, a lot of questions. And right. um, <laughs> I mean, I'll start by just talking broadly about Canada. So, you know, broadly speaking, we're all freaking out <laughs> like everybody is around the world because we're, we're in this cycle of unknown. You know, we just, nobody really knows what's going on nobody knows how many people are going to die nobody knows how many people are going to be infected nobody knows how long the economy is going to be in free fall and in chaos and there's lots of people creating models both financial and kind of health models around what's going on so there's there's potentially some idea of the future emerging but there's so much that's unknown that you know in Can- in Canada like all around the world, there's all sorts of scrambling responses to try and figure out what's going on at a federal level, at a province level, which is, you know, the Canadian equivalent of a state, um, at a municipal level, you know, in Toronto, the city I live. There's a lot of, this is what we told you two days ago, now hear this. (laughs) This is how it's shifted. Here's how it's different. Here's how we're adapting. One of the things that I think is impressive and, um, you know, knowing knowing that this podcast was originally the meeting of two perspectives across a, a political divide, you know, um, the way the politics works, broadly speaking, in Canada, I'm, I'm no expert at it, but this is broadly how it works, is we have a federal government and we have um, provincial governments. And unlike in the States and also in Australia where I come from, provincial governments have more autonomy, more power than the federal government does, Um, or certainly more weighted than you might find in other countries. So if you're the governor of Ontario, the province I live in, you actually have control over a good deal of decisions that get made around uh, laws being made and and money being spent. Um, And the way the politics stand at the moment in Canada is we have a prime minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, who is... um, centre-left, and uh, of the 10 provinces that we have, uh, nine of them are uh, the, the governing, pa- the, gov- the, the ruling government is conservative, and one of them is liberal. So there's actually been, since Trudeau's been in power, a certain amount of butting heads and kind of uh, differences in ideologies in terms of how the government's being run. And, you know, we're, we've been moving towards a federal election here in Canada. So the federal federal government's been kind of going, you don't want to, you don't want to, 
you don't want a government that's like your provincial government and the provincial government's going, you don't want a, a, a repeat of what we just had. But what's been really impressive has been how there's been a very strong alignment across the country in terms of a response that feels aligned in terms of commitment and language and a financial approach that goes from the top all the way down. So the federal government is spending vast amounts of money to provide relief, provide support. Um, you know, if you're a if you're a, a small business, I run a small business. Uh, the government will will offer up to seventy five percent of uh, replacement income if you're in, in in lieu of trying to lay people off. Because obviously, when you lay people off, it's a disaster. The economy really does break, so just uh, we'll pay seventy five percent of income to keep it going on. There's the, the prime minister speaks every day at eleven o'clock. Our Ontario premier speaks every day at one o'clock, and they're just very aligned in terms of their language, very aligned in terms of how they're thinking about tackling stuff. And in some ways, one of the interesting things about being in Canada is there's a unified approach to pol. A political management that I've just never seen before. I've, I've lived here for twenty years, and it's 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 never it's never felt like this before. No, oh, that's great. I, I mean, one of the things Harry and I keep talking about is it seems like when this crisis first happened, you know, three, four, or five weeks ago, everybody was united, and now it seems like the like the political spears are coming out, and and mm-hmm. each of the parties is jabbing at each other and trying to find blame and and trying to have a. a, a you know, you know, supervision of the other. And it's, it's, it's just interesting. It, it, you know, one of the things that I know is, you know, as a fellow Rhodes scholar here, you know, we were sort of taught maybe officially and, 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 and unofficially at Oxford was that we were going to be the leaders out there at some point. And, mm-hmm. and, and as you were saying, you, you know, as you're growing up, you're sort of thinking, okay, show me the leadership book. Okay. Show me what I have to do. And you realize, you know, what, what leaders have to do today. It's almost like parents. You sort of, here's your kid. Here's the moment. Get on with it. And it's it's sort of like that today. I mean, and and it's interesting, as you're saying, I, I, you know, I don't know if our natural tendency in the U.S. is to is to fight or debate. But, man, are we doing it right now? And it started out as as united, and now it's sort of breaking down. But, Herod, what, what do you think? Is that what you're saying? I mean... I mean, I don't know. I think it's going to differ depending on the country that you're in. I think talking about, you know, there's different approaches. I've, I've read a lot of articles on the New York Times and CNN and um, all the websites my dad, you know, isn't a big fan of, um, kind of just talking about how Canada and the U.S. have been handling things differently in a sense. And that, for example, one of my best girlfriends lives up in Edmonton. And we were just talking yesterday about just the, the stimulus kind of relief that's going on. And it feels like Canada has a much better grip on, okay, we need to help our citizens and just $1,200 in a lump sum isn't going to be enough to, to help everybody. And instead, it's, it seems like they're actually, the government in Canada is stepping up and saying, okay, people are obviously going to be getting laid off. People are not going to be able to pay their rent and, and do things like this. So as you said, 75% of their salary some people can get. Um, but it sounds like people are getting consistent checks up until, I think, was it October that the government in Canada has said? Um, they'll help out for, but I, yeah, I, yeah. I'm not sure, I'm not sure where the latest is. I mean, it's interesting it's in- how quickly the government here is adapting. I mean, Trudeau first came out and said we'll pay 10%, and then within a week came back and said 75%. So, 
who'd who'd want to be who'd want to be a political leader at a time like this? I mean, it must be enthralling and exhausting and impossible. Um, but there really does seem to be a a an awareness of the infrastructure across the country. So, you know, as everybody knows, Canada has socialized medicine. And that's under pressure because um, there's a lot of people who are sick or about to get sick, and we're all about flattening the curve so that our health system can cope. But there's a great commitment to thinking about how do we engage our, our health system to get people through this. We know that there will be some of the health systems in some of the provinces will be potentially under stress. I mean, Quebec said uh, yesterday, I think they said, look, if we, we're seeing a maximum of this number of people who may be dying, that would, that would overwhelm our emergency uh, part of our hospital system. But what, we, what I think Canada has, and this will show you my politics, because my politics are uh, kind of closer to Harriet's than probably Randy's, oh. which I'm sorry about that, but yeah. That's okay. um, that's why I live in Canada. Um, oh, by the way, Justin Trudeau. Oh, I'd move to Canada for that guy and his wife. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's he's very charismatic. He's he's not he's a flawed human being as well. I mean we don't want to get too I can't I can. Oh, I know. Like, it is. Very bad decisions. Uh, that was yeah. years ago with his dress code. But right. um, yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. But there's but you know one of the things that. Um, there are structural advantages to living in Canada at a time like this, and I do think a, a national health system uh, is something that you go as a as a country. We can unify behind supporting that and figuring out how to fund that and how to get people through that, so that whether you're whether you have health insurance or not, not that that's actually a thing in Canada because we have socialized medicine. Um, you're going. You're you're going to be likely to find a way of getting well if you happen to get sick around here. But you know, there's a, there's this unified approach, federal and provincial and even municipal, about going. How do we ensure that these hospitals have the resources that they need to get through this? Oh, I hear sure. you. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say that I actually read. I think it was in. Forbes about a week ago, and I don't know if things have changed, but Canada actually, Justin Trudeau came out and said, I feel like we have a, a decent amount of PPE, like protective gear for, for medical and hospital staff. And he doesn't think that there will be a shortage on that, which I thought was great. Um, I know things could change, obviously, but uh, do you well, there's, some, there's some intense discussions happening with the United States who went, we're no longer sending stuff across the border. <laughs> and there's no, uh, there's a yeah. there's a fairly intense conversation between uh, the, the top levels of our governments around whether that's going to happen or not. For sure. I'm sorry, Dad. What were you going to say? I cut you no, off. no, no. I know that. I guess 3M, uh, the the Minnesota company was uh, mm-hmm. was going to be making masks, and they had uh, and they had uh, uh, some uh, orders from Canada, and I don't know if these were uh, previous orders or what, but yeah, I, I mean, one of the things, and look, you, you know, as I tell people, I, you know, I'm a Trump supporter, I'm a Trump delegate at the convention, but you know, I'm not, I'm not a Trump clone. So, so there are, uh, you, you know, he, he is who he is. And, uh, and, uh, but I think at the same time though, uh, one of the things I think we're, we're sort of missing in all this, uh, is that the U.S. just doesn't have a role for the U.S. We are, you know, the leader or one of the main leaders, hopefully the, the leader from a U.S. standpoint, 
in the West. And so, uh, and the Western Western powers are looking at us. And, 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 and you know, some yeah, yeah some oh, sometimes yeah. we forget about being being the leader. You know what that requires, and and it requires not always focusing on you. And and you know, look, you're you're our northern neighbors, and and, and you know, you both benefit, and then don't don't benefit from from that relationship. And, and you know, it's but it, you know, you know, sometimes there needs to be more of uh, you know more, more diplomacy, probably on this, and more togetherness rather than to say, hey. Uh, you're on your own, and, mm-hmm. and that's what it sounds like. I think you know. I don't know if you if you agree there, but but it sort of sounds like we're we're sometimes saying that, and I'm not sure we mean it. Hopefully, we don't mean it uh, because the world's watching us right now. So, well, you know, there's the, there's a saying up here that you know when America sneezes, Canada catches a cold. So, yeah. you know, there's a there's a weight you have, and we share the world's you know longest undefended border. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know enough about how politics works at those most senior levels. But yeah. um, when when you think about the fact that Canada and the U.S. are both each other's greatest trading partners, um, and when we're trying to fight it at a this thing is it's a global pandemic. There's a there there does feel like now's the time to be going. How do we support each other and work our way through that rather than how do we how do we set up our borders? I mean, there was talk at um, I'm not sure how this planned out, but also the U.S. moving up um, uh, army to to be close to the Canadian border, and you know, there's there's a, there's various subtexts in that action that stiffen the Canadian spine. No, 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 I hear you. I'm sorry, Harry, you were saying. Yeah. Uh, Michael, I'm curious to know, because obviously you are Australian, but you're living in Canada. Um, and, and I personally, I've always kind of cringed a little bit, a kind of blatant nationalistic approach that America seems to have. Like, we're number one, we're number one, because truly it feels like, and I, I like your opinion, you know, as an Australian and a Canadian, how, how do other parts of the world, Canada, for example, view America? Do they see us currently as handling the pandemic well? Are we kind of a laughing stock? I'm just, I'm curious, because I have a bunch of Canadian friends um, spread all throughout Canada and are kind of, I don't know, people in the, in the U.S. tend to think we're, you know, we're the best, we're this global power, which we are a global power, obviously, but we're not just some untouchable entity that, that always gets it right. So what's the Canadian opinion of kind of how America's handling this epidemic? I'm not sure I can speak for the entire Canadian opinion about about America and how we're handling it. That, that may be taking on too much. Um, Maybe your opinion as a Canadian, I guess. Sure. So it this is this is what I would observe. This is just Michael's point of view, looking down across the border. You have a you have a a, a system where you have these two parties pitted against each other in a death grip, which feels uncompromising, and in and there is no capacity for unified action. So it kind of doesn't matter what's best for your country; it only matters what's best for your party. And so when my 
Prime Minister stands up and goes, we need a Team Canada response on this. I believe that. And actually, I see that. And I see that across political divides. Should anybody stand up and go, we need a Team US response to this? I wouldn't believe that would be possible. Um, and, and I don't know enough about the difference between federal st structure and state structure and how that politics works and how the money works. But, um, you know, you can tell me whether I got this story right, but this is a story I half heard today, which is um, an election in Wisconsin. Maybe it's a, some, form of, some form of voting required. Um, the Wisconsin governor, governor Democrat was like, we need to cancel this or postpone it because of the <laughs> there's a yeah. pandemic. The Republicans, who I think controlled something that disallowed the governor from doing that, refused to do that. And now people are caught between a do I go and vote or and and spread a pandemic or not. And oh, that's, you're 100% right. Yeah. No, no, no. And, so, I'm, and I'm like, that's not, a, that's not a Team USA decision there. That is a political decision. And, you know, I, I, the, I read I, – my news comes from my particular news bubble, which is primarily – not Fox or right-wing uh, uh, instruments. You're not but, and taking but, it as fast. But I'm just like, but, but you know, I mean, I do know that you know, Fox spent a lot of time leading into the pandemic going, it's a democratic thing and they want, the, they want COVID to, to do this because it's a plot against Trump. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, it's... Forget forget the details of that. It's like it just speaks to a division that makes you go, how will you have a unified government response to this? I mean, because it, it needs a unified response to sort this out because otherwise you have a governor in Florida who goes, oh, no, look, it's spring break. <laughs> so I'll just, not, I'll just not enforce the social distancing, whereas we have every single government uh, provincial leader here going for god's sake go inside and if we catch you we will fine you huge amounts of money yeah, no, and I and that just feels a structural i mean this isn't this is i mean i am more left than right wing in my politics but it's and so what i notice is this, that gap and it might sound like i'm ragging on republicans but the bigger structural issue is how do you guys create a unified response to anything that's why Harriet and I are focusing. I mean, I mean, a large part of this, you know, this this podcast is really talking about the bipartisan part. Exactly. You know, we we've been, uh, you know, when I remember Rhodes Scholars who, like, uh, who would go into to the Senate or or the like. You know, we always had our Republicans and Democrats, but they always talked to each other. I don't want to say they they were from the same club, but it's it's almost like they were they you were more. Them. I'm more unified today then, but, but, you know, let me also ask you, I, I mean, look, you, you're Australian and kick, mm -hmm. you know, by birth and, and the like, and, and how are the Aussies handling this right now? And any different for, from the Canadians? I, I don't know if you have family back in Australia or. Yeah, I do. In touch? I, so I have parents and brothers and nieces and nephews and, and the like back there. You know, it's, um, uh, I don't know quite enough about how it's going on. 
Um, so I'm getting it through. I'm not following the news in Australia, particularly. I'm just following it through my anecdotally through my my family and the like. Um, you know, it's very interesting just to see time lag in places. So, and how 48 hours can move the narrative significantly. So there was at one stage I got an email from my parents going, you know what, I think we're going to take this social distancing thing seriously. So we're, we're going to reduce movement. We're just going to drive the kids to school and we're only going to meet our friends by picnics down by the lake. <laughs> so I'm like 48 hours ahead of them and just writing them an email going, no, no, let me explain what social distancing really means. It means that you don't drive kids and you don't have picnics by the lake. You stay in your house and you start figuring out how Zoom works and how ordering groceries works. And you start moving to what isolation means, which is because you're my parents, you're in your 80s, you are in that, you are that vulnerable, venerable, as they're calling themselves. You know, you're like, you're in trouble if you decide to drive the kids to school. And, um, and you know, they got that message. So they, they changed their behavior around that. Um, I just don't know enough about the structure. I mean, for me, I'm more interested in the structural issues about how structurally do you overcome this? And I just don't know enough about how, how that works in Australia. I don't know. Sure. Um, you know, in Australia, there's, um, I would, I would say that there's a, a the federal government in Australia has a, a, a broader remit than, um, and, and the state power is less strong in Australia. So it's unclear to me to what extent it can be driven by the um, the federal government, and there's less opportunity for kind of unilateral uh, state-based action to go, well, we're just going to ignore that and come up with our own ideas of how to do this. I do know that Australia has lurched from a drought to a horrific bushfire season where half, half the country got burnt down to this. And, um, you know, I, I don't – I just don't know – to what extent there's that kind of devastation of loss of jobs and loss of economy and the like, because it's kind of insult after injury after injury in terms of how people are coping there. We hear you. We, we have a lot of experience with fires in California. I know Harrod, Harrod's been through a couple of fires with us right now. And, you know, a lot of us have masks, you know, because of the fires and that. And so yeah. most people have them here, but let me just ask you a quick question and then maybe we can, you know, I'd really like to find out more about you and about why mental health, why your podcast, yeah. why did you choose you know to start box of crayons and the like. But but uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit about you? So so sure. how'd you get interested in all this? I, I mean, yeah, it's a fine question. I I'm not entirely sure myself, but I I do know that um, you know the. If, if, if people know me for anything, it's possibly for the book I put out four years ago called The Coaching Habit. And what that book is about is to kind of make this whole idea of coaching feel a little more accessible and a little less weird for people. It's like it's not some sort of weird HR thing or touchy-feely thing. It is a way of showing up as a leadership behavior. And the key behavior is can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? And, you know, I just, uh, Randy, knew as a teenager, I was pretty good at listening to people and listening to their kind of hard times because, you know, as a teenager, everything's a hard time. And when I went to university, I did uh, telephone crisis counseling, kind of youth suicide hotline stuff. 
And then when I left Oxford, having studied there and started my career, I started noticing the rise of coaching happening actually in California because it's the it's the hotbed of world coaching. And it was like, okay, I'm not sure what that's about because, you know, Californians, you can never trust a Californian. Always weird. But, yeah, always a bit odd. You know, always a bit kind of loopy. But right. moving to Boston where I moved to after I lived in London, I hired a coach. I then moved to Canada. I did my coach training. And I was like, you know, this coaching is a thing and I'm pretty good at it. But it turned out that I, I, I wasn't as interested in being a coach as I thought I would be. But I was interested in teaching people how to be more coach-like. I love the technology. But the idea of building up a, you know, a, a small practice of 20 or 30 clients and coaching them regularly, honestly, I'm too much of a show-off. I like to be a speaker. I like to perform on stage. I like to come up with ideas. And coaching didn't quite give me all of that. So, you know, I started Box of Crowns 20 years ago. And it started in the classic, <laughs> you know, I'd just been fired from my previous job. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm, I'll, do any, I'll do anything to try and make this work. And, um, and so I did all sorts of stuff. You know, I, I could turn my hand to a bunch of different things, facilitation, stuff on teaching creativity, stuff on teaching strategy, stuff on teaching communication skills. But over the years, as I kind of learned the power of focus in terms of building a business and building a business model and scaling and the like, Box of Crowns has grown to now be kind of a key provider of helping organizations shift their culture from advice-driven to curiosity-led for clients like, you know, Microsoft and Salesforce and, and other big kind of global companies like that. And, yeah, I can't remember what the rest of your question was, Randy, but that's kind of the, a very rapid-fire, how, how did I end up here? Sure, sure, Howard. What, what do you say, Howard? I mean, I, I, I think that's, that's awesome. I, I understand the desire to, to want to kind of do both and, and coach and then also have more of a, a platform in a sense. And I, I can tell just mm-hmm. obviously, look, yeah. You going to say something, Dad? No, no. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, you also did public, have done a, a ton of public speaking as well. You're a pretty renowned public speaker, which is awesome. Um, but the other part I think was kind of how did you get into this interest about kind of mental health? I guess. Yeah. You know, I, want people to live the best lives they can and that's just that's I mean if you're getting into a lot of coaching there's there's part of you that's around how do I help people be the best version of whoever they can you know if you're tapping into the road scholar thing that Randy and I both share it's like how do you help people fight the world's fight and if you're going to do that you need your people to be the very best they can and it's to have the courage to focus on the stuff that matters and it's to have a degree of resilience and self-awareness that allows them to be the best version of themselves that they can be. So that's just been floating around forever. You know, one of the first books I wrote more than 10 years ago is a book called Do More Great Work. And it basically says, look, everything you do in your life falls into one of three different buckets. It's either bad work, good work, or great work. And bad work is mind-numbing, soul-sucking, life-crushing, <laughs> bureaucratic, what the hell am I doing this for? This is my one and precious life, and somehow I'm doing this. Good work is your job description, so productive, efficient, getting things done, what your boss wants you to do, what your, what your organization is set up to deliver. But great work is 
the opportunity to do work that has more impact and the work that has more meaning. And um, you kind of want both of those things there. You want the ability to say, of all the stuff I could be doing, what's the stuff that makes a difference here? What's the stuff that moves it forward? What's the stuff that, that shifts the metric that I actually care about? But you also want it to be engaging. You want it to speak to what your values are. You want it to light you up. You want it to kind of be a thing that engages you. And if you can think you of have, it, yeah. Sorry, Randy. No, you know, can you have a good work job, and you have to, and then have great work in the other things you do? Or sure. What's the goal? Is the goal to have more of what you do to be great work? Is that the is that the goal to like from when you get up to when you go to bed? That's great work. Well, I think so. One of the exercises I will do is I'll go look. If if you've got these three different types of work, bad work, mind numbing, soul sucking, waste of time. Good work, it's your job description, and great work, it's the work that has more impact and more meaning. Then a really fast, easy exercise is to say, draw a circle on a bit of paper. And thinking about how you spend your time at the moment, how much bad work, how much good work, and how much great work are you currently doing? And then when you look at that, I mean, Randy, it's like balancing a portfolio. When you look at that, you go, so how's that working for you? <laughs> are you happy with the balance you've got between bad, good, and great? Because if you are, fantastic. But honestly, most people aren't. Most people look at it and go, I've got too much bad work. I'm not sure how I got that. Honestly, I've got too much good work because for most of us, there's an endless stream of good work coming at us. It's fine. It's not terrible. But, you know, my bet is that neither you, Randy, nor you, Harriet, have an empty inbox at the moment. You probably got, you know, accumulated emails that are waiting for your attention and you're like, I'm not that thrilled about doing that. And you're probably not doing quite enough great work. And then the question is to go, it's like, so what would need to be true for you to shift, you know, 5%, 10% more great work? Because I think what you're looking for in the moment is, do I now have the right balance between good work and great work? And there's a way of even scaling this to understand it as a way of thinking about strategy in a very basic way. You know, if you're running an organization, you need to be looking at your organization going, we need a balance between good work and great work. Good work is doable, consistent, revenue predictable work that we know how to do, we know how to do it well, we know how to sell it, we know how to make a profit on it, we know how to scale it, and we can kind of automate it, you know, and just get it out the door. But you also need great work. You need you know, that's blue ocean strategy. That's going, how do we innovate? How are we different from our competitors? How do we use the, what, what are our key resources? What are our key points of differentiation? How do we make the most of that? How do we stand out? And, you know, one way to think about leading a team or leading an organization is to go, do we have the right balance between good work and great work? So it's a model that scours from individual satisfaction right up to what does it mean to run a big company? Oh, I, I love that. I was going to say too, I call it like, well, I guess what you kind of, I think everybody has their own definition of, uh, or maybe words for, for their great work. And I, I like to call it either your zone of genius sure. or, you know, the stuff that really like lights your soul on fire. Yeah. It's kind of how I say it, you know, when you, when you get into that flow. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, 
I love that. I, I agree with everything you said. And I, I think that's a really beautiful way to put it. I think, and I know my dad and I can talk about this and I know it doesn't necessarily deal with politics per se, but I think it's extremely important. Um, I know I've worked for myself since the day I graduated college. I never wanted to work for anybody else. Um, I started in e-commerce and then I actually changed into kind of a, an e-commerce marketing coach. So, you know, your books have, have actually very much motivated me uh, people like Mari Smith and all those kind of sure, people are yeah. my, yeah, I actually have worked with her, um, over the oh, last terrific. year. So yeah, I saw you guys were connected, I think, um, in some way that was awesome. But, uh, but yeah, I think people spend so much time thinking they need to go into a job that they hate and punch the clock and do the nine to five because that's what they're trained to do. And they don't really tend to dream bigger and ever really get into that great work. Um, I sat next to somebody on a flight who said to me, Oh, I can't wait till I can retire and live my life the way that I've always wanted to. And that is just (laughs) That's a that's a proven strategy for disappointment for the most part. Um, but but to Randy's point, it, it is also worth saying that it's it can be really helpful to look at your life and go, do I have the right balance between these three different things? Because there is there are plenty of people who go look, my job is fine and it funds my life and that's sufficient and I don't actually need to find deep meaning in the work that I do. I don't want to be disengaged, but I don't have to be super hyper-engaged. I don't have to be – I mean, I personally get a lot of meaning out of my work. I love it. I think hard about it. I make choices that help me try and be more courageous and more focused and try and have more impact. So I, I, for me, work is really important and it matters and, and it's an essential part of my identity. But, you know, I think of one of my brothers and, and he does important work. You know, he works in Australia. He works for the government. He works for um, a particular unit that is about stopping indigenous youth killing themselves. So it's work oh. that really matters. But you, but I, but he gets a good deal of satisfaction out of that work. But it's not. I wouldn't. I don't think he'd actually call it his great work. His great work is his family. He loves his family, and he does his work so that he can build a life and an experience and a way of being with his family that really matters to him. So I think it's about holding the holding the the, the bigger picture about what's the overall mix. It is so very depressing when you read about the percentage of people, not just in the U.S., but just kind of globally, who are spending somewhere between 40 and 60 hours of their life at work and are thoroughly disengaged by it. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit of – let's talk a little bit of – yes, I'm sorry. Let's talk a little bit about these principles now and people working from home with Mm COVID-19, which I know a lot of our listeners are going – it's interesting. Some people are going, oh, I got to work at home. Yeah. Other people are like, yeah, I'm working from home. Right. And and for the people who are down, I think they, you know, I'd probably recommend they need to have a little bit of soul searching as to why is that a bad thing? And for the people who like it, maybe there's, you know, maybe there's something there that, that they, that they want to work on or, or something that kind of they, they want to hold a little bit closer to them. I I, I know here you know I, I was at home and at first and, and, and you know like I sort of you know I don't have to spend two hours traveling and so right. and sometimes <laughs> glorious. 
He's like, sometimes just, it's, you know, sometimes though it's good to, to get in a car, go to work and know that it's going to be over when you come home. There's always that feeling of coming sure. home. You know, yeah. I remember my dad used to, you know, he was, he was a manual worker. And so there was this whole thing about coming home, you know, your parents are coming home and then it's, and then it's a whole different life at home. And there's the separation of work and home, but, but it, it, you know, now work and home, are one and the same. And, and, you know, I go into my office, I put my heater on because my wife likes it cold. And so, you know, I sit here, I come out for lunch and I sit here till five or six o'clock yep. and I try not to answer calls and that, but, but, you know, I'm closer to them and it's nice to be able to just have that convenience. You know, if I want to go pet my dog or throw, throw my, sure. throw my toy or pet my cat, I can do it. But how do you recommend people cope right now? And and I know part of your, out of all your podcasts, or part of your podcast right now, we're going to be dealing with that. But what do you recommend? What are some of your, what are some of your tips right now? Well, I think the first thing to say is, um, it's a really hard time, and you're, it's okay to be a bit of a mess. <laughs> you know, I just think, I think there are very few people who are running at a hundred percent right now. So if you're thinking to yourself, I'm kind of beating myself up a little bit because, you know, why aren't I doing better? Why aren't I being more productive? Why aren't I being more focused? You know, it's like it's because the whole world is turned upside down and you're not so much working from home as you're working from home while sheltering from a global pandemic. And it's yeah. worth having that context and having a bit of grace and gentleness with yourself as you try and figure out how to work. I mean, I've been working at home for uh close to 20 years and I'm having days where I'm like, I am just getting nothing really productive done at all. <laughs> I just, I feel to be, I feel like I'm high on the, the kind of anxiety hamster in a wheel axis and low on the actual getting anything done. So have a bit of grace. And then I think there's just something to say that ritual and structure can be really helpful in terms of giving shape to what you're trying to do. And different people will need and want different forms of ritual and structure. But, you know, Randy, to pick up on one thing that you're saying, which is there's lots of people who are used to having a transition period between finishing work and arriving at home. Because, you know, you finish work, you get in a car, you listen to music or radio or a podcast or something, and it's, you know, it's a bit of a drive. And it, there's a moment where this is the, the threshold you're crossing so that when you arrive at home, you're ready to be home. Now, when you walk working at home, you literally walk out of your office and you're there. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I had, I had just under three seconds transition. And now I have to kind of reset myself with my family, with my wife, with the dog, with the expectations of how I'm now at home. And so there may, there may be a, one thing you could do is to go, look, I need 15 minutes where I stop working, but I don't yet arrive at home. <laughs> and I go sit in a different corner of my office, or I go and hide out in the basement, and I read a book, or I go for a walk, or I do something that allows you to make that transition. Um, I love that. Yeah. And then it's like, so... Uh, there's a lot of guidance online about how to best work at home. And for everybody listening, 15% of that is going to be awesome for you. And 85% is somebody else making stuff up and it's not going to land for you. So it's like figure out what you want and what you need. 
Um, you know, there's a there's actually a guy on uh, LinkedIn Learning, and I'm just actually calling up my my uh, my computer here because I want to give you a specific name so that you can actually look it up. He runs a course on how to work at home, and it's pretty good. And it's it's nothing fancy. Uh, he's a nice, he's a very nice guy. I know him a little bit. He's a nice straight-laced Utah boy, and he's got a whole bunch of really practical suggestions on how to work at home. And his name is David... Uh, there you go. I, he's only got his, his, I've only got his uh, initial, David C. Um, so David Crenshaw, C-R-E-N-S-H-A-W. And I would say look up Dave Crenshaw's uh, courses on LinkedIn Learning. I think they're, they're actually being offered for free at the moment. It's one of the things that LinkedIn is doing to support all of this. And he's got all sorts of really great tips around how to set up your set up your office, how to set up yourself, how to set up your brain, how to set up transitions. Just lots of really grounded practical tips on what to do. And with all of this stuff, I'm always take what's useful and ignore the rest. No, that's and, and yeah, who had, who had said that? At, uh, that was Bruce Lee also. That was what Bruce Lee used to say too. Uh, Bruce Lee, you know the uh, the martial artist used to he combined uh, he combined a bunch of uh, martial arts together. Right. And and his whole principle is just just learn what's essential. I mm-hmm. mean, you know all the all the you know ritual that doesn't apply to you and that you, you know take and it's like life I guess take from life what 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 you you know take from relationships in life what what you feel is essential for yeah, you it's like it's like getting feedback from somebody you know so often somebody's feedback to you tells you a lot more about them than it tells you about you but you know what it's always interesting just don't mistake it for being the truth <laughs> it's just somebody oh, making yeah. some stuff up and then you get to decide whether that's useful or not and if it's useful oh, yeah. do something with it and if it's not useful just let it flow by oh yeah hey michael I know one of the topics Harrod has been deeply involved in right now is is coaching mental you know you know coaching people with various mental health conditions. Mm-hmm. So you know you know I know some of those people now, and and mental health is such a broad area as you as you know, and, and the truth is probably we all have you know you know everybody's wired. Bit differently here, and, yeah. and I, I know the road scars. Republican, did. Democrat, I get oh, yeah. it. <laughs> I know the um, oh, Harry, you, you're like, uh, you guys must have been talking before, but you know, but I know that the roads, you know, a bunch of road scars, five, seven, ten years ago, uh, you know, wanted to let let students know and and young people know that hey, look, you can be successful with various conditions and that, yeah. and they came out with a series of. Of, of videos and that, and I, I was going to do one in OCD, and I got I got OCD, and 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 you know it's it, it is what it is. It's it's it, it's how I've had it live. But but yep. but during this time right now, do you, do you have any special advice for people who are suffering with other conditions about how to how to deal with this new crap? You know this new and this pandemic, which it's it, you know it's a it's a W two S moment for everybody. Yeah, you know. Well, What's your advice on that? You know, I'm I'm always reluctant to 
give advice because a because I've written books about slow down on the rush to give advice. So just on a principled note, and b it it often either sounds way too specific or way too general, <laughs> and it's like how do I how do I find the sweet the Goldilocks sweet spot? But I'll tell you how I'm trying to navigate this time. And there may be something useful here for people and maybe not. So I think that, it. first of all, I keep reminding myself, this is a really hard time full of uncertainty. And our brain is wired at a very basic level to go, you're, I like certainty. <laughs> so your amygdala and your limbic brain parts are just freaking out right now. They're like, I don't know what the hell is going on here. And so you'll just feel higher levels of cortisol and those chemicals that make you feel a little on edge and a little anxious. So the three, the two things I would suggest to this is like, what do you, what do you need to do to re- try and reduce the things that make you more anxious? And I'll give you a specific example for me. Uh, two days ago, I removed the email app from my phone because I just found myself checking email too much. And partly it was a kind of weird nervous twitch around what's going on. And now my phone, I pick, I keep picking it up and opening it up and going, oh, actually there's nothing interesting on my phone. <laughs> so I just have to put it down again. And it allows me to protect myself a little bit from just self-induced anxiety. The second thing I think about is I go, okay, I, there's a, there's a line here in between the light and the dark. And my job is to try and do my very best to navigate that line. I don't want to go too far into the dark because then I just, you know, spiral into anxiety and uncertainty and it's all going to go to, it's all, we're doomed. And, and not only does that affect me and my well-being, it affects those around me and the people I'm trying to lead and influence and be a beacon of some sort too. But equally, I don't want to go too far into the light because if it's all about kind of, oh, this is going to be okay and we're going to be fine and and I'm pivoting and I'm redesigning my business model and opportunity and that feels brittle and unrealistic and tone deaf and just kind of has an inappropriate tone for me. So I'm going, right, I, I, you know, this comes from in the Stockdale paradox, which is that in the Vietnamese prisoner of war camp, the optimists are the ones who died first. You want to hold a line of realistic optimism. And so what I just keep thinking to myself is, so realistic optimism for me is going, I'm trying to walk the line between the light and the dark, not go too far on either side of that. And what that means to me on a day-by-day case changes and what it will mean to anybody listening will be different for them than it will mean for me. But there may be something there in the principle of find the line between the light and the dark that is just helpful for other people navigating this tough time. Hmm. Very good advice. I mean, Harry, do you you have anything on that? I I know you've been focusing a lot on that with some of your clients and your friends and that, but. Oh, I mean, I think, like you said, realistic optimism (laughs) is important to have. And I I completely relate to what you said about the need to just 
I think checking your phone is, for me at least, I know it's almost like a reassurance. And as you said, our, our nervous system, it craves certainty. I think just as a whole, as a, as a person, um, we, we, and we're living in such uncertain, unprecedented times right now. And there really isn't that certainty. And I, I find myself looking up things on a daily basis. When will this be over? When will it be safe to mm-hmm. see family again? When will, you know, stuff like that. And people want to know, but it's so day by day, week by week right now. So I think like you said, establishing figuring out what things you might be doing out of a a nervous habit that are no longer serving you, like copiously just persistently checking your email or looking at the news, taking a news break, putting your phone down two hours before you go to sleep, stuff like that can just help your brain get out of this sort of panic spiral and and just calm down your amygdala a little bit, as you said, the fear center of the brain, uh, Mm -hmm. which I feel is in overdrive right now in, in a lot of people. So... No, I, I, I think that's amazing. And I, I know we're, we're running out of time here, but I wanted to ask, I know that you are, um, you're, you, you have started and you're going to release the first episode of your new podcast. We will get through this and it's available to subscribe to on iTunes right now. You have put up your introduction. That's right. Uh, first yeah, first episode you- dropped next week. I'm quite excited about it. Oh, good. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah. That's amazing. What can people look forward to um, in, in these episodes? Yeah, so I thought I would just try and figure out who knows a bunch of interesting practical stuff around staying resilient. And, you know, there are some people who are actual resilience researchers, so they have a kind of academic grounding in it. But other people come with a perspective based from sport or from psychology or from uh, finance or from physical health. You know, if you think that we have these different spheres in which we manage our lives, there's a physical sphere, there's a mental sphere, there's an emotional sphere, there's a spiritual sphere, there's a there's a kind of out-in-the-world sphere, which is like money and the like. There's a lot of people who've got some interesting perspectives on that. So the first season is uh, 20 uh, interviews, 25, 30 minutes long, with people who I know or know a little bit about. And I go, tell me, tell me what you've got to share about resilience, give me a tool or an insight or a practice that I can I can use to help build up my own resilience. Because there's not one thing that will get you through this. It's a bunch of, you know, it's like you're building your toolkit so you have a selection of different resources that you can draw upon to enable you and your family and your team and your organization to get through this. I love um, that. And so is, when is the first episode dropping? You said tomorrow? It is dropping next week, I think. So I think we're targeting Tuesday the 14th of April. And we're going to uh, drop the first episode, the first three episodes actually then, and then for the week following that, and then the bulk, so whatever that is, 12 or 13 episodes, uh, the final week of April. And then the whole first season is available for binge viewing or listening. I love <laughs> binge not just in this country, but all over the world. Right. <laughs> That's right. But thank you so much for, for taking the time to come on. Dad, do you have any other questions you want to throw out Michael, there? Michael, I tell you what, to, you, know, uh, you know, we appreciate what you do and uh, uh, keep doing it. And, and uh, you, you, you know, if, you know, I think you just don't have lessons. If we think about this, this podcast right now, what you've done really, I think, on this one, one is to give some lessons to the leaders 
and also, uh, I'll say lessons, but, but some tips maybe, but, yeah. and then also maybe some, some guiding principles to help people at home right now to, to, uh, to help us, you know, to help them and help us get, get through this trying time. So you are always a friend of the podcast Thank and you. of anything we do. And if there's anything we can do to help you or, or the like, and, uh, and if any of our listeners want to get, get in touch with you, uh, uh, How can they do that? Yeah, thanks for asking. So the best place to go is head for the website, which is mbs.works. And that's kind of a hub. So there's free courses that people can take and information about the books and all sorts of good stuff there. Awesome. I will put that in the description podcast. And then I will link to uh, your new podcast as well. So please, our listeners, go subscribe, give it a good review, and listen to the first few episodes uh, when they drop week you listen to the introduction right now and seriously go get some of michael's books if you just are looking to you know learn more about leadership learn how to become more curious and learn how to do less good work and and more great work so thank you again michael for coming on we really appreciate it and make sure you stay safe and, and take care of yourself as well during this this 